Critics love to discredit the Bible. Like Satan in the Garden of Eden, they ask, did God really say? They assert that it represents man's search for God and therefore is full of myth, legend, and superstition. Is the Word of God trustworthy? Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore, sitting in today for Dr. Reagan, and with me is my co-host, Nathan Jones, our Internet Evangelist. Also with us in the studio is a very dynamic teacher and preacher of God's Word. His name is Alan Parr, and he has a ministry located here in McKinney, Texas. Alan, welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Thank you, Tim. It's Tell us a little bit about your ministry. Well, thank you so much. Uh, super excited to be here with you all once again. Good to see you again, yeah, Nathan. Yeah, good to see you. And uh, yeah, I have a uh, ministry that's largely an online ministry. It's a YouTube channel called The Beat, which stands for Biblical Encouragement and Truth. And essentially, I publish faith-based videos every Tuesday and Friday, answering frequently asked questions that people have about the faith, uh, questions about relationships from a Christian perspective, and all sorts of other um, exciting topics that we do on the beat. And you don't just have a YouTube channel. You have one of the biggest, most subscribed to YouTube channels out there for Christians. So, you're very humble. Well, I appreciate it. It's an honor, and uh, God has truly blessed it. And just looking forward to uh, being here with you all today and excited about what God's doing here at, at the ministry. Well, we've been looking forward to having you here. We've been trying to put this together for some time, and so we're glad it did work out. And obviously, I appreciate your focus on biblical biblical truths that you share online. And so today that's really what we want to focus on because of late there's been more and more criticism of the Bible and some who are beginning to stray from the Word of God as being the truth of God. So for example, earlier this year a pastor in Nashville said this. He said, the Bible isn't the Word of God. Set up in, or excuse me, uh, self-interpreting, inerrant or infallible. It is a human response to God, living and dynamic denying the, the truth of the Word of God. How do we contrast that with what we know of as the truth? Yeah, well, I think uh, one of the things that, if I'm not mistaken, he may have mentioned that it's like filled with myth or legend and different things like that. And I think that when people make those statements, they don't really understand the gravity of the statement that they're making. Uh, in other words, you know, if we're saying that the largely probably thinking more so the Old Testament, some of the stories of Jonah and the, the, the fish and, and different things. And they say, okay, well, this myth or legend. And what we're really saying without saying that is that Jesus was a liar because we know that when Jesus was on the earth, he put a stamp of approval largely on the Old Testament because he preached from that, he quoted from that, he taught that in the synagogue. So I think we have to be careful when we say, okay, well, the Bible is full of myth and legend because with that, we're also making the, estate, the statement that we believe that Jesus was a liar as well. And not only that, I don't think there's any real proof that we can say that these events that happened in the Old Testament were legends or myth. That's just somebody saying, well, I don't believe that Jonah was really in the belly of a you know, fish for three days. So, I don't think there's much proof there for that. So, Interesting. Yeah. 
What about people then that they look at the Old Testament and they look at the stories and then they look, look at the New even, well, that's 2,000 years ago. Those are primitive cultures. They didn't have cell phones and, and they didn't have the, the problems that we have today. Therefore, the Bible can't be relevant. How is it supposed to help us today? Do you believe that the Bible is just as relevant then as it is today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I personally enjoy, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but I personally enjoy studying the Old Testament a little bit more than the New Testament. I love okay. both of them as a student of the Word of God, but I relate more to the stories and the lives and the lessons uh, that we can find in the Old Testament. And I think one of the things that we have to remember is that there's something that we call in Bible study as timeless truths. And these are things that um, that are going to transcend time, culture, geography. Uh, these are just truths that we see in the Word of God that are going to be true no matter what. And when we look at the stories of the Old Testament, we see people that are dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with today, whether it's worry, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, uh, whether it's feeling like God has abandoned them, all those things. And so I think that when people make the statement that the Bible or the Old Testament largely is not relevant I just don't think that maybe they understand how to study the Bible to see the relevancy of it and make it practical. One of my favorite lines is from the Muppets Take Manhattan. Kermit was talking to a restaurant owner, and the restaurant owner said to Kermit, peoples are peoples, in that New York accent. And it's true that people back then weren't different than people today. Sure, that culture might have been a little different, the clothes and the, the activities, but the people then were made in God's image just like we are today. They had the same problems and the same hangups. So the Bible what addressed those issues then is definitely relevant. I, I love the way you can bring the Muppets into our conversation <laughs> of Bible inerrancy. Well, been canceled, so. Yeah, he has been canceled. <laughs> a lot of folks will tend to criticize some of the authors of Scripture saying, well, they were just ignorant and, you know, these were agrarian people that didn't know very much. They were farmers, uh, shepherds. And yet, I, I love what Paul says, writing to the church in Corinth, when in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he said, But God has chosen the foolish things, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise, and He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. I think that's evident even in the people He calls to this day to serve Him. To where people don't look at our power or our natural abilities, they say, it is obviously God working through this imperfect vessel, and yet in Scripture He called all sorts of authors to record the revealed Word that He proclaimed to and through them, and yet the wisdom and the truth echoes through all the way to us today. And I appreciate what you said, because the stories and the examples are all throughout the Old Testament, and of course all the Apostles reference the prophecies in the Old Testament to prove who Jesus was as the Messiah promised of God. Yeah. Well, how about this? Uh, evangelicals themselves argue that the Bible is inerrant. And a lot of people don't understand what that really means. Explain the word inerrant to us. Yeah, so, um, you know, as theologians, we believe that the word inerrant refers to the original manuscripts, right? And so, whenever we say the Bible is inerrant, we don't mean the King James or the New International Version or whatever translation that people are reading, because we understand that that has been translated from manuscripts. And then even those manuscripts are the original manuscripts where the pen hit the paper or the papyrus or whatever they were writing on at that time. So, you know, good news and bad news, right? The bad news is that we don't have the actual manuscripts that Paul wrote 
and you know in our possession. That's bad news. But the good news is that we have something called textual criticism, where we can say with I don't know the exact number, but I think it's around 99% accuracy that the Bible that we have in our hands today is indeed the Word of God. And so um, by cross-referencing and doing that type of science, we can be sure that, you know, once again, that, that what we have is indeed the Word of God and we can trust it. Um, now, once again, this idea of inerrancy doesn't mean that if we open up our Bible and we see that in First Chronicles it may say one thing and then, uh, you know, you look at, um, you know, First Samuel or First Kings, it might say, you know, David had 20 people here and 200 people there, whatever it is, there's those scribal errors that we have to understand. And those are just very easily, um, you know, explained because whenever they were copying from manuscript and manuscript, if they left out some sort of mark or something like that, it could have easily been translated as something different. So I know sometimes when people say, oh, you know, the Bible has errors in it, they'll point to some of these small scribal errors, which uh, can easily be explained. The jot and tittles. But the doctrine itself is unchangeable throughout history, right? Exactly. And we have some documents to prove that the Bibles we have today are the same as they were 2,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, you can right? point like to the Dead Sea Scrolls and see that some of the writings that we have proven through various dating methods are 2,000 years old and older is what we are still using today with the only exceptions being just, as he said, jots and tittles. And the Word of God will not be changed down to the jot and tittle. Yeah, the Bible promises but we can that. trust mm -hmm. that what God has revealed to His prophets, to the authors of Scripture, has been passed down to us. Now, it takes the heart of a Berean to examine even a various translation and make sure we're getting the, the actual intent and meaning of what God wants us to understand today. Yeah. What about when you have, there was this pastor in Georgia, it just I was really shocked. He started teaching that that we should divorce the Old Testament from the New or, or unhitch it, I believe he said, and that the Old Testament has nothing to do with the New Testament. But is that true? Can we be New Testament Christians or even red letter Christians and just cut the Old Testament loose? Yeah, I think that's pretty dangerous. Um, you know, people tend to, and I even think that type of mentality has crept into the church because a lot of people just find it easier to read the New Testament because you don't have to necessarily, um, you don't have to understand the book of Acts in order to understand the book of Romans. And you can read Romans without understanding James. And you have all these different, you know, um, uh, books that are not necessarily connected. Whereas when people try to read the Old Testament, it's a lot more difficult for them because it's a Long Especially story. It's, oh, Leviticus. Is, <laughs> Leviticus. I call Leviticus, uh, I the, Leviticus. Uh, <laughs> uh, the read through the year, read through the Bible in one year killer, right? Because people get to there and they kind of get stuck. But I think that, um, you know, we have to understand that in order to really properly understand the New Testament, we have to be able to understand the Old Testament because so much of what God has done in the New Testament, for instance, Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. If we don't understand that that is really a fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right. that we won't really appreciate the fact that whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, one thing is true is that, um, uh, that God has a history of always substituting the innocent for those of us who are guilty. So if that is true that you have to really have an appreciation of, an understanding of the Old Testament to really illuminate the New Testament, what would you say is some of the other keys to understanding the Bible in general? 
Well, I think, you know, one of the main ones is, is context. And I think that so many times you see people just grabbing one verse of scripture, ripping it out of its yes. context, and then building an entire theology on that, right? So I think that just a simple thing for those who are watching is just that to make sure that whenever we're looking at a verse and we're starting to assess what that verse means, that we say, okay, what did this mean in that context? Another one would be really trying to go back and figure out what the author's original intent was. And I think that too often people read the word, excuse me, read the Bible and they're thinking, okay, well, this is what it means to me. Instead of saying, okay, well, what did Paul mean when he wrote that to the original audience, right? So I think that is another thing as well as um, really just trying to get to the cultural differences because we can read it with a Western type of culture and think, okay, well, in our culture today, this is what it means, right? But we have to remember that the Bible was written in a different culture and a different time. And so those are just a few things that I would say um, really help us better understand the Bible. I think another key is we have to believe it first and foremost. And just as you go to Revelation and there's a promise for those who read and heed the book of Revelation, the only book that has twice mentioned a promise just for reading it. And people say, well, I can't understand it. Well, if you believe it, you will begin to understand it. So really the, the challenge is believing first, and then I think the Holy Spirit illuminates with greater and greater understanding. Now, of course, it requires that we actually do read and that we actually do study in order to gain that level of understanding, but belief is critical. Dr. Reagan has agreed to speak four times at the Bible conference that is scheduled to be held at the Carpenters Christian Church in Harrodsburg, Kentucky on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, May 22nd through the 24th. Joining Dr. Reagan as the other featured speaker at the conference will be Bob Russell, the former pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, one of our nation's largest churches. Both speakers will be presenting down-to-earth, practical sermons about how to live with tough faith and what the Bible calls the perilous end times. The conference is free of charge. For details about the conference, go to the host church's website at carpenterschristian.church or call the number you see below. In addition to the speakers, there will be opportunities for rich Christian fellowship and worship. There will also be a question and answer session that will give you an opportunity to ask your favorite Bible question. Again, the dates are May 22nd through the 24th, and the host is Carpenters Christian Church in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and our discussion with Alan Parr about the integrity of the Bible as God's Word. Well, Alan, let's pick up where we left off before the announcement. What would you say are some of the most convincing evidences that the Bible is actually the Word of God? Well, I think for me, uh, the most convincing evidence is fulfilled prophecy, which I know you all can appreciate. Well, we certainly here. can. <laughs> uh, you know, but whenever I look at, um, you know, different things that have happened throughout history and how God has fulfilled those prophecies, it necessitates, in my mind, a divine author, right? When you think about, I think about sometimes if I were to sit down right now and try to think about writing what might happen next week or two weeks from now, I would have no idea how to even start that, right? But to think about writing something down that's going to happen 700 years from now or 500 years from now is just unthinkable for us, right? But when you look at Daniel predicting the world powers that were going to be in play, and you look at how Isaiah prophesied, um, you know, how the Messiah was going to be, um, you know, crucified and different things in Isaiah 53, 
you can't read those things and then say, okay, well, a human brain came up with those things, right? It just no. necessitates that a divine author was there. So well, that's actually why some of the critics like to say, well, that couldn't possibly have been written in advance. That must have been written after the yes. fact. And, and we know and trust and believe that that is not the case. God did reveal. And he even scoffs at the so-called false gods. He said, let them prophesy, let them predict, because they cannot and have not. Yeah. Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, took the Messianic prophecies, 108 distinct Messianic prophecies, and Jesus fulfilling just eight is one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's one followed by seventeen zeros, and that's just eight of the hundred and eight. So fulfilled Bible prophecy, you're absolutely right. It could not possibly have been thought of by man ahead of time. It had to come from the mind of God. Uh, what substantiates then? Because Tim brought up, I think, a great point, is they say, well, those books were actually written later. How do we know that the books were written when they were written? Yeah, well, I think, you know, once again, just looking at the history of the manuscripts and looking the at the, early, the archaeology saying. as well, okay. right? Looking at that and how things were dated, as well as just really trusting the the testimony of the early church, right? And and just understanding that this is the way that we've always seen that these letters were dated, different things like that, um, really give us confidence that, you know, the Bible is, is the Word of God. But also... Um, I think there's some level, as you mentioned earlier, we have to believe the Bible. There's some level of just faith. We have to just have faith that God would not be having us live by a book that is not His, right? I mean, that's like mm -hmm. we get to heaven and God's like, gotcha, you know, that Bible really wasn't real, right? We have to have faith that the Bible that we have today is indeed the Word of God. Well, we think we see that too through transformed lives. I mean, think of the billions of people over the last thousands of years who have come to faith in God and through His Son, Jesus Christ, because of the Word of God. I mean, that to me is the biggest evidence that the Bible is indeed God's Word. Yeah, and I'll add one more to that is just also, um, you know, we know that the Bible is one coherent thought with no contradictory ideas. And so, you know, we look at 40 different authors. If you put 40 different people in a room and you tell them to Across have a conversation. 1,500 years. 1,500 years, different, you know, continents. And you put them in a room and you say, okay, I want you all to agree on these very controversial subjects, marriage, family, all of this and that. We would get a lot of different, <laughs> sure different you know, discussions and things. But yeah. the fact that it's one unified voice where people are in agreement with, these authors in agreement, seems to suggest or prove that they were all inspired by the same Holy Spirit. I love the example of, uh, of lives that are changed. And, and you can look at the apostles themselves, this group of ragtag men from a backwater part of Israel uh, back in the day, up in Galilee, most of them. And they were not very uh, courageous. As a matter of fact, shortly after Jesus' crucifixion, they were, they were cowering in fear. And yet, when He was resurrected, and when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, their lives were changed. They were emboldened. They were empowered. They proclaimed the Word of God. They used Old Testament Scripture repeatedly throughout all of their presentations, all of their sermons. Uh, you can go to Acts chapter 2 with uh, Peter and his very first sermon, and it's just prophecy after prophecy fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, and their lives were changed. I'm reminded of how Chuck Colson wrote about uh, his own conversion experience in his book Born Again, and he said, here were these high power men working in the, the White House around Richard Nixon, and they couldn't keep a conspiracy together for a handful of weeks. <laughs> and he said, yet these men back who served and, and learned under Jesus Christ, the rest of their lives held true to that faith because they knew it to be true. And they knew the Bible to have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. 
And yet there are some people today who say, well, okay, I'll, we'll grant you, Jesus had a special kind of relationship and He was something special, but let's just look at the red words in the Bible. In other words, only the words of Jesus are really special and the rest, well, that's all mythological. So, you've already touched on that, but what would be your answer to someone who just wants to read the red portion? Well, you know, a lot of times when I hear people say that, what they're normally referring to is the writings of Paul and how, because Paul has certain perspectives, whether it's perspective with women and ministry and things like that. And they'll say, well, you know, I believe what Jesus says. I saw, I see the, the writing and it's red, red letters. Okay, I accept that. But Paul, I'm not so sure. And I think we have to once again be careful there because, um, you know, if we say that only the letters or the words that are in red are the ones that we should listen to, then that wipes out the Old Testament as well. Which yes, once again suggests that Jesus was a liar because Jesus put his stamp of approval on the Old Testament, which we know doesn't have any letters of any red red words or letters or anything like that. So if Jesus put his stamp of approval on a set of of writings that were written by man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, then why would we not also assume that the New Testament writers were under that same inspiration? as the Old Testament writer. Yeah, over and over again, even as Jesus was tested, He countered Satan's temptations by quoting Scripture. And when He was sometimes sparring, if you will, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, He repeatedly, I counted multiple times, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 3, 5, chapter 19, verse 4, 21, verse 16, on and on, where He said, Have you not read what so-and-so wrote, or what so-and-so said, referring back to the Old Testament and challenging them for their lack of faith because he pointed to what was prophesied, what was recorded in the Old Testament, and he validated all those words. I had to look that up too because I was curious how many times did Jesus quote the Old Testament, right? He had 24 direct quotes, 78 indirect quotes, and 26 just from the Pentateuch alone. And he most quoted uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the Psalms. And so, if Jesus, who was the angel of the Lord, was the pre incarnate Christ, there's the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus was in the beginning as John 1 says. So, obviously it was Jesus Himself through the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers then. So, how can you get rid of the Old Testament or get rid of the New Testament if they, is it because they're picking and choosing what they want to believe? And that seems to be what it is, right? It's okay. like, okay, well, if I say that I'm only going to go with the red letters, then, you know, I'll accept that. But then I have liberty to choose everything else in the Bible that fits my worldview and uh, how I want to live my life. Especially homosexuality, because Paul was so on women, he was a, you know, he was a misogynist. Yes. And he is a homophobe and all. Exactly. Uh, I even encountered a guy just recently who said we could only take the book of Matthew. You couldn't take all the other 65 books. You had to, he was a Matthew-only Christian. Matthew-only Christian. I've heard of King James. <laughs> yeah. 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 He Matthew was a Matthew-only. Only. <laughs> well, if there's a, a new Christian and they're coming to the Bible and they want yeah. to start, where would you recommend they start? Should they start in Genesis or should they start in Matthew? Some say John. Where would yeah. you start? Well, I always point people to the Gospel of John um, okay. personally because I think that it is the clearest picture of who Christ is. And if you're a new believer, the first thing that is really necessary for you is to fall in love with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sure. who died on the cross for your sins. And I think the way John, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, set up his gospel, first of all, there's no parables in John, so you don't have to worry about getting tripped up and confused to how to figure out what does this parable mean, what's the meaning, so you strip all of that away. But also it's really centered around the seven I am statements. 
and then eight miracles, right? So seven times Jesus said, I am this, I am the way, I am the door, I am the resurrection, I'm the good shepherd. So you get a good picture of who this Jesus is, but not only the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. So he's centered around eight um, miracles in the Gospel of John. So that's where I would point someone's attention to first. Uh, people also ask, what uh, translation should we use? But even before I, I go to letting you answer that, I will build on what Nathan said, because Jesus, in referring to the Old Testament, did refer even to things like Jonah and the whale, or the fish, as pointing to His own death, burial, and mm, resurrection. So, it had tremendous significance. It wasn't just a mythological story. He referred to it as a historical event that had prophetic significance. And I think when we begin to read the Old Testament looking for the prophetic significance as as fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, or to yet be fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, and in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament comes alive. Which is why I love Leviticus. It proves that God wanted to dwell with His people. And yet, because He was so holy, there was still this separation. They could not even ascend unto the mountain of the Lord. And so, this desire of His to dwell with His people is why Jesus came down to dwell among us, and to breach that veil, to cross that divide, so that we really can enter into a relationship into the very presence of God. So, when you get both the old and the new in perspective, as you said, in context, it brings to life. But that goes back to the question, okay, Tim and, and Alan and, and Nathan, I get it, but which translation should I use? Should I go with that King James only or some other translation? What do you recommend? Yeah, so, uh, once again, for me personally or just really anyone, I would say if you're studying the Bible, you're really trying to study, getting serious about it, I would probably go with a more of a word for word, and this is, gets into translations. You have phrase, you have thought for thought, word for word, and paraphrase. But for the sake of time, uh, I would try to go for more of a word for word translation, something like the New American Standard, uh, the ESV, or even the New King James. Uh, something that you can understand that's comfortable, but is very close to the original manuscripts. But if I'm just reading the Bible and I'm just like, you know what, I'm going my doing my daily devotional, then I might you know, use something more like the New Living Translation, which is what I believe is, is still a very accurate, if you want to call it a translation or a paraphrase, but, um, but it's, it's a lot easier to read specifically for a new Christian. Well, you're a seminarian. Shouldn't you be reading it in Hebrew and Greek? Yeah, well, I, I do that every morning and every oh, evening, right? So but in the middle of the day. For I a person who's just getting introduced, what encapsulates the Gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed throughout the Scripture? Yeah, I think that the gospel is simple, that Christ died, was buried and uh, for our sins. And if we place our faith in Christ and believe that he, I am a sinful person deserving of death, but God loved us enough to send His Son uh, to die on the cross for our sins, if we place our faith in, in Christ and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that He is raised from the dead, that we'll be saved. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. Alan, so good to have you on again, sir. Thanks. Can you tell folks how they can reach your ministry? Sure. Uh, my website, alanparr.com, or on YouTube, which is entitled The Beat with Alan Parr. Well, Alan, I'm also glad you're able to join us today. I hope you'll come back, and I hope the Lord will continue to bless your ministry for many years to come or until His coming. Well, folks, that is our program for today. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope, the Lord willing, you'll be back with us next week. Until then, this is Tim Moore speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Godspeed.
Two of the most outstanding Bible prophecy experts in America today, Jeff Kinley and Mark Hitchcock, have teamed up to produce a sobering book about the raging apostasy that exists in the church today. The book is titled The Coming Apostasy, but they quickly point out that it has already arrived and is rapidly corrupting even those who claim to be evangelicals. They subtitled the book Exposing the Sabotage of Christianity from Within, and the book lives up to that challenge. In one hard-hitting chapter after another, they reveal the off-the-wall apostate doctrines of demons that are corrupting the church from within, such as the blasphemous teaching that there are many different roads to God. In the process, they provide an overview of the many biblical prophecies which proclaim that the church will be filled with heresy and apostasy in the end times. And they emphasize that the fulfillment of those prophecies before our very eyes today is proof positive that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. The book is 200 pages long and is written in down-earth language that anyone can understand. It can be yours for a donation of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. To order, call the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central Time or place your order through our website at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 